This is Jim Pruitt, and you listen to another episode of the Farm So Hard podcast. So I farm so hard, the employees want to find me, and then want to hire me. What's 100K to a guy like me? Could you please remind me? Farm so hard, this ain't easy. Working late nights, you best believe me. My grades can only go ace. Never want to see another B unless I'm Jay-Z. Farm so hard, that's your host, Jim Pruitt, a.k.a. Farm D and ED, and I bring you another episode of the Farm So Hard podcast. Today, we have a special episode that we're going to be recording because it's going to be something that I love. I think all of us that works in ER are going to be super interested when it comes to just doing things in cardiac arrest. And I wanted to highlight some pharmacist-driven work that's been done out in the community. And I'm just super excited to talk about this one particular research project that was done by Kyle. But before we dive any deeper into all of this, uh, can you just tell the audience a little bit about yourself? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Thanks for having me here today, Jimmy. It's great to be here. Um, So a little bit about myself. I was actually born and raised in uh, Duluth, Minnesota. So for those who don't know where that is, um, it's northeast Minnesota, right on the tip of Lake Superior, um, approximately two hours north of the Twin Cities. Um, I did uh, my undergraduate studies and my pharmacy training at the University of Kansas in Loris, Kansas. So Rock Chalk Jayhawk to my fellow KU grads that might be listening right now. Uh, After pharmacy school, I completed my PGY-1 pharmacy training at Mercy Hospital in Springfield, Missouri, and my PGY-2 training in emergency medicine at Sarasota Memorial Hospital in uh, Sarasota, Florida, um, which I completed in 2021. And then after that, I stayed on at SMH as um, an emergency medicine clinical pharmacist. And occasionally I float and staff up in our ICU as well. Cool beans, man. Thanks for letting everyone know about yourself. And I think anyone who knows anything about emergency medicine pharmacists uh, in general, we know that Sarasota, again, their hospital go back to the original ED pharmacist study that was done by Terry Fairbanks and all of them. So the original pharmacists that were officially trained when there was like two, three pharmacists, uh, pharmacy residents out there. Again, these were kind of, kind of the, I call them the OGs of ED pharmacy. So the work you guys been doing down there has been superior for a very, very long time, dating back to the 1990s. So excited to have you on to kind of be a representative of that. But I want to kind of shift and let's talk today mostly about this study that I was kind of blown away by uh, a, a lot more so from just the work that you guys did to get to it. So the study that we're going to be talking about today is going to be esmolol vector change dose cap epinephrine for pre-hospital ventricular fibrillation or pulseless VTAC. And of course, we have the primary author here to talk about all the deets when it comes to this, because I think that research like this is substantial, one, because this is something that if depending on how this thing goes from this, this study that we'll talk about, we can be changing a lot. And one study sometimes can change a lot. And I think as we look at work that's getting done and, and cardiac arrest uh, literature, it's not necessarily always represented by PharmDs, even though we're doing some of the work. So that's one thing I want to kind of highlight. But again, as we, like I said before, tell us about your journey and what led you into like research in general in EM. So uh, this project specifically was uh, part of my training, obviously, for my PGY2 EM pharmacy residency. Um, I didn't have like a huge research background from undergrad or um, as a pharmacy student, but it's always something that I've been interested in. Um, More specifically, um, 
in emergency medicine, I had an interest in resuscitation. So these concepts that we looked at um, in the study, esmolol, vector change, those adverse effects of epinephrine that we see in this refractory VFib, pulses, VTAC um, patient population weren't something that I was super familiar with um, coming out of pharmacy school. So as I began to learn about those concepts during residency, I really did find them fascinating. Um, and I felt like there were some significant gaps in literature. So there's a possibility that I could find something more meaningful. So really when this research opportunity presented itself to me during residency, I just jumped on it and dove right in. Um, I was really excited about the fact that it was a pre-hospital study. I was going to be working um, with EMS and collaborating and forming those relationships. And then additionally, it was uh, going to be a multi-center study, which isn't something that I ever saw myself doing in my career, let alone as a new practitioner, as a resident. So I was really excited just to kind of get the ground running on this project um, as a resident. Yep. That's phenomenal. Again, something so substantial when it comes to research being done multi-center. Most people won't even think about this. And that's why I want to highlight to a lot of people the significance of having a pretty established ED pharmacy program to begin with, because they've done, Eileen and all of them, they've done work before. Again, I, I've met, again, countless pharmacists that's either worked there in the earlier days. But again, that's kind of the foundation and the collaboration that it takes to really get that, because those relationships with pre-hospital wasn't built overnight. Those relationships with the physician, things that it wasn't built overnight, but established ED pharmacy services really, I think, was a, a, a big thing when it comes to that. And you kind of jumping in there with eagerness to do this is phenomenal because again we can probably count a, only a handful of pharmacists in general that's done multi-centered studies in particular in this this manner all right so uh, enough fangirling about your program fangirling about the fact that that a, a pharmacist actually did let's let's actually get into the the study on the use of esmolols and vector change and dose cap and epinephrine and let's break it down for the listeners because some of them may not have, have have saw it because the first thing I was writing a book at the time that I saw this come out and I was like, oh, my God, I have to kind of break this down. So first, just the very basis. Tell us what was the primary goal of your study? Yeah, so our study evaluates an EMS protocol for patients in refractory, um, VFib, pulses, VTAC, cardiac arrest. And uh, that protocol includes esmolol administration, vector change, defibrillation, and capping the total dose of epinephrine at three milligrams. So a total of three doses. Um, before I get into like the primary goal and objective of the study, I do feel like I should touch on the background on how this protocol kind of came to be. So like I said, there's three main parts to it. The first intervention being esmolol, um, beta-1 selective, beta blocker. Um, esmolol is thought to be beneficial in these patients because it, it helps to overcome some of those harmful effects of catecholamines that we can see um, in these patients. So it, it can cause an increase in myocardial oxygen demand, um, lowering of the VFib threshold. So um, epinephrine is uh, pro-arrhythmogenic. So why are we giving it to patients that are in a fatal arrhythmia? Um, so sometimes those adverse effects can really limit the success of our standard ACLS um, intervention. So the two main studies um, kind of in the background of all this that showed benefit were published in resuscitation um, by Driver and colleagues and Lee and colleagues. Um, these two studies were very small and retrospective, but did see um, significant increases in ROSC in those patients that received esmolol. So that's the background behind that first intervention. 
Uh, the second intervention being vector change. So vector change defibrillation kind of describes um, the changing of the defibrillator pads from standard um, anterior lateral location to an anterior posterior location. Um, so the thought behind that is that it allows for a greater delivery of electricity um, to the entirety of the heart. Um, we had some preliminary findings and data that found um, that showed promise in improving outcomes with vector change defibrillation in these patients. And then now, obviously, with the recent publication of the DOSE-VF trial in the New England Journal of Medicine, um, this practice, at least at our institution, has become a little bit more mainstream. Um, but that was after um, my study came out. Um, and then the last intervention was capping the dose of epinephrine. Um, so older studies suggested that higher doses of epinephrine administered to patients um, in cardiac arrest due to shockable rhythms are, are associated with poor outcomes. And this was kind of confirmed or validated in more recent studies. So the paramedic two trial, there was a subgroup analysis of patients with shockable rhythms that um, didn't show any survival benefit in patients who received epinephrine compared to placebo. So really with all of that evidence in mind, our local EMS agency implemented this three-part protocol um, utilizing all of those interventions, EMS protocol, our personnel were able to implement vector change, hold additional doses of epinephrine once patients met criteria for refractory VFib, pulses VTAC. Um, and then EMS captains were actually contacted to approve and administer as well in the field. So the thought was that if each of these interventions improves outcomes individually, they should also improve outcomes when utilized together. And really the primary goal and outcome of the study was to evaluate the effects of this protocol um, on sustained ROSC, which we defined as ROSC that lasts for at least 20 minutes. If you're looking for a guaranteed way to pass your BCMP exam, check out PACU Prep's six-week fast track program, 1,300 questions, personalized fast track option to skip ahead of the things that you test well on and spend more time in our mastery modules on things that you need a little bit more help on. Check out the show notes for more information. Perfect. And just so intriguing kind of when I hear this, like as I'm like thinking about this and like reading your introduction, kind of going through getting all this data and realizing, hey, we potentially hasn't been doing cardiac arrest the best way you possibly could because of the because of the data we found on the dose of epping or all these other things. And Esmolol is super exciting. And I think every time I bring Esmolol out, you know, in a cardiac arrest, it's like, oh, my God. I remember one time I had a case where he gave it. And he was like, what was that drug you just gave? What was that? This is amazing. So kind of having that background and having the data and then seeing how that led to this, I was super intrigued. But a lot of us like to nerd out, right? A lot of us want to get down to the nitty gritty. So we know some of the, you told us some of the background and you told us kind of your main goals, but can we dive a little deeper into how you actually approach this and what does that actually look like in your method session? Yeah, so um, our study itself, um, multi-center retrospective cohort, st cohort study, um, I do have some more specifics on our methods discussed in the publication. So feel free to um, ask additional questions um, if you really want to get into the nitty gritty of things. But um, I do want to focus on a few main aspects of our approach that I feel made us successful um, and some of the challenges that we did face when we were conducting the study. So really our first main success um, was having a great relationship with the medical director of our local EMS. And you really touched on um, 
kind of how established our EM pharmacy program is. And I was really lucky um, to be able to benefit of those relationships that all of those pharmacists formed before I came to Sarasota Memorial. Um, so our EMS medical director, Dr. Frank, um, one of the authors on the study was extremely engaged, um, helped provide any resources that he um, had available to us to make this project a success. Uh, one example I can think of early on when we were first meeting as a research group, um, we were thinking of ways to um, uh, generate our lists through the EMS uh, electronic health record. So we got us in touch with EMS IT workers to, to develop our, our screening lists um, for both groups so that we could easily um, go through those lists and include or exclude patients for our study. And then we also had um, an amazing nurse through EMS that helped collect our data um, so that all could be input into our um, REDCap data collection tool, okay. um, which really is kind of the second aspect of our methods that helped make this project successful. So my residency program and institution utilizes REDCap for those um, who haven't heard of it or might not be familiar with it. Is it It's a data capture application um, that helps you just gather and organize data in like a secure location. So essentially I was able to create a survey of like yes or no questions for which outcomes I wanted to look at for um, my patient population, like free text answers if I was looking for specific um, uh, number entries or um, places that the data collectors could input like dates and times that specific um, outcomes were occurring. So if I was looking at time to event, I had all of that information in REDCap and it would calculate all of those timings for me. Um, but I think the most useful aspect of REDCap is that I could share this data collection survey with other people using their email, and then I could limit how they interact with my project. So for the multi-center aspect of my study, um, for hospitals outside of my institution, I could share my project um, with whoever my contact was um, for them to input data only. That way I didn't have to worry about sharing Excel spreadsheets or losing uh, sensitive patient-related information um, when I was going back and forth with them. So I think that was um, one of the major things that made this process a success when I was um, coordinating it. Um, that brings me to my biggest challenge was coordinating the collection of all of this information from multiple sources. Um, since it was a pre-hospital study, I didn't have any control over where patients were transported to from the field. Um, a majority of patients did come to my institution, luckily, um, which was great. Um, I could just access their patient charts, just like any other retrospective chart review, and find that information that I needed. Um, the tricky part was when patients didn't come to my hospital. Yeah. So once again, I utilized my connections with local EMS. Um, every EMS agency, I'm sure, collects quality data from the hospitals that they transport patients to. So they do have contacts with people um, at all of the hospitals in the area um, of people who collect data for them. So I use those relationships that were already there. Um, that's something that the, our research group discussed early on in case outside hospitals didn't necessarily feel comfortable sharing information with me. Um, so we actually met with our hospital's legal department. We drafted a data use agreement, which essentially is a kind of um, uh, document that 
uh, kind of outlines how we're going to share and use data with each other. Um, additionally, we gather documentation from IRB um, just to show that our project was vetted um, and make people more comfortable with, with sharing um, data with me. Uh, when those connections through MS failed due to lack of resources or they just didn't have the bandwidth to help at the time, we would use connections through um, the pharmacy department to find pharmacists um, at these other institutions that were willing to help collect data for us. And once again, um, this was made really easy with REDCap, just sharing that survey. Um, they would input the data and I would have that just at my fingertips when it was coming to analyzing the data. So I think those are the main successes as well as challenges that I have. But if there's anything more specific um, about the methods that you want me to discuss exactly how I did it, um, feel free to ask. Yeah, I think that's because most people can kind of read those things. The thing that you can't find in the method section is like, like you mentioned, some of these things that were great that we should be focusing on. And I wish it was an area where we can put in the supplement and say, hey, these are some challenges you may have. And if you, if you can limit these things from happening or if you can use REDCap or use a, a particular type of data uh, software, this would be extremely helpful for you. So I think just mentioning some of those things, and again, the challenges as well, it's, it's super helpful because, again, most people that go into this don't know where to start and they don't know where to start and they don't necessarily know what challenges will come up. So I think us mentioning when you're designing all of these things in you know, relationships you need to have, how important it is. So I think that's a, a, a huge thing. So again, you guys go read, this, read the paper, dive a little bit more into some of those things to geek out on. Um, but again, this is one of those, again, retrospective, uh, just uh, chart reviews to look into what was done in, in the field and how that actually led to an outcome. All right. So, we're now down to the big part. We kind of hit some of the background. We hit the methods of it, in particular, some of the challenges and, and some of the, the things that went well. Now people want to say, hey, you guys found all this stuff beforehand. You did all this amazing stuff. You, you're also phenomenal research and pharmacist. What was the outcome? So initially we hypothesized that the EMS protocol bundle would lead to improved outcomes, uh, but we actually found the opposite of that. Um, so patients were within our study were less likely to achieve ROSC, um, achieve sustained ROSC, as well as uh, survival to hospital arrival. Um, with regards to survival at discharge and neurologically intact survival, um, the rates of those outcomes were small and similar between groups. Um, there are some key differences in our two study groups that I do want to highlight. So first, um, patients in our pre-group, so the, like our controls, those that, that did not receive our protocol bundle, um, had numerically higher rates of bystander AED use mm. um, and higher rates of initial shockable rhythm. So as we know, okay. early defibrillation improves outcomes. Um, and as we know, the incidence of non-shockable rhythms tends to bring poorer prognosis. Um, also, patients in our post group, obviously by the nature of the protocol, received less epinephrine as a result. Um, and as we know, um, administration of epinephrine does increase the rates or increase the incidence of ROSC. So those are some of the main reasons why we think we found these results. It's definitely not what we were expected, expecting. Um, I was a little disappointed um, personally for myself, but um, that's what we found. Yeah, that's amazing. Again, as we, we think about this and we go into it. We definitely didn't expect it to be a, a, a quote unquote worse. And I, you mentioned some of the, the key things that people really need to kind of pay attention to. And I, because what I don't want to happen, people say, ethanol kills people. 
or the, 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 the lack of getting epinephrine hurts. And I think when we look at this, one of the things I, I, I saw is we had 126 total people in that study period, I believe. And then a few of them didn't necessarily meet the definition for refractory VFIP. So again, when looking at your numbers, things of that nature, of course, we thought we'd be able to find something. But I, again, from my perspective, just the fact of getting the AED use, which has a number you need to treat a four. <laughs> so we're talking about like one of the best interventions in, in cardiac arrest. So mentioning that, the study size, uh, that's definitely something that I, I pulled away. I was like, okay, let me not get too, you know, too overwhelmed with the information and really just talk about how, you know, some of those other factors kind of led to this, but not to de-emphasize the role that pharmacists had in this and like what happens now, you know, Again, you already got relationship. You know how to do the research. If this is tweaked or someone else want to kind of pick up the baton and it has a little more time as a resident or something like that, these things can be tweaked and kind of looked at. Because so, there's a ton of things I'm like, man, I'm pretty sure what really happens behind closed doors and how long this stuff takes and, you know, whether everything was done exactly as a protocol set each time. All those things kind of pop up, pop up in my head when I think about all the work you guys did to design all of this and whether it looked different in a more prospective RCT like kind of perspective. So that was my approach on looking at all of this really want to kind of see, as you mentioned before, you mentioned that, again, it's not necessarily something you expected, but again, any additional commentary on as far as like why the results came to the way they wanted, they, they came out or again, we'll talk about the next question after. Um, what was the question? Um, any more comments on why we feel we found what we did? Yeah. Um, Yeah, I think there were just some some minor differences in just like the baseline characteristics or um, prior uh, interventions that yeah. each group made. Um, additionally, also, so this is kind of a pre-post study, um, and the uh, protocol was uh, implemented in, I believe, December 2019. Um, so you've got to think that's right before the COVID-19 pandemic as well. So um, just our EMS ability to respond in the field and those practices did change. So there's going to be some some differences in how they're responding to these medical emergencies as well. Yeah. And you just mentioned something pretty key as well, because, again, I remember at one period of time, there's some studies coming out. People that just had COVID in general, they did have these shock or rhythms to, to, be, to begin with and they hit like 97% mortality. It was like really, really, really crazy. Uh, so again, you may have some of those patients in that, that, that bundle as well. So I think uh, we, we kind of get a different time frame. We don't have the sickest people and, and, and have a pan, you know, epidemic going on. Uh, we'll definitely find, probably find something different. But another cool question I want to kind of ask, kind of shifting from this in, in this hypothetical scenario Let's just imagine for a moment you had like no limits or on re on resources. Uh, what further research would you pursue in this area? Honestly, if I had no limits on resources, uh, I just feel like replicating the study like a large randomized control setting would be amazing. Um, and really, you could apply that to any research question you have in emergency medicine. Essentially, if we're thinking pre-hospital, just take the methods from the paramedic two trial and uh, apply it to any of the interventions that um, that we looked at in our study. Um, and if we had all the time in the world, no limitations, that's probably what I would do. Uh, you could actually evaluate more meaningful outcomes instead of just ROSC or sustained ROSC. You could look at 
survival benefit, neurologically intact survival benefit, and actually like enroll enough patients to be able to detect a significant um, a significant difference between groups. So um, I think just large scale, randomized, controlled, prospective would be the way to go. Absolutely, man. Kyle, again, thanks for your, your insights today. It's been phenomenal in kind of taking us through kind of the background of this research study, the, res- the methods, the results, and realistically, what would be the best possible case scenario? And then we think about what that unlimited resources presentation or, or study would look like compared to this one. Was you, you start to kind of say, okay, hey, we didn't, we didn't find anything that we, we wanted to, but realistically, if we had a few more resources, a little larger sample size, maybe we would get there. So I think it's clear that, again, pharmacists can actually benefit in this part. I think a lot of people kind of recognize that, but I think the bedside pharmacists, the one that's actually doing these cardiac arrests from the field, those are the people who can actually play a significant role with uh, cardiac arrest literature. And I'm just super excited to have pharmacists as a part of that. But before we close out, any parting words for any of our healthcare professional listeners when it comes to this study, research in general, or just emergency medicine? Yeah. So I know, um, as we've discussed today, my study in particular, it may be small, it may be retrospective. It's definitely not a randomized control trial, but I still never imagined that I would oversee a project to this magnitude um, in my career, let alone as a new practitioner and as a resident. So I guess my best advice for listeners would be um, to find an area in pharmacy or medicine that interests you, uh, stay curious, learn the literature, ask those meaningful questions that could potentially lead to meaningful outcomes, find other people that have the same passion as you, collaborate, um, and you can really accomplish anything, um, especially since pharmacists are, are, are experts in pharmacotherapy. I think it's really important, too, that we're involved in those conversations. We're in the room, um, involved in research when it comes to um, pharmaceutical innovation and research. So it's really important that we're involved as well. Yeah, I'm super inspiring, man. Super smart. Just the fact that you, you, you was able to do this. Again, I kind of fangirl quite quite a bit just thinking about like all the steps that it took to get to this point. And I'm pretty sure there's many sleep, sleepless nights and frustrations and everything in, in between to get to this point. And I think it just shows that, again, the bedside pharmacist, no matter what, what part of your career that you're in, can really make a significant impact. And literally all it took was a few patients turning the corner here or there for this to be something that may be included in a guidelines moving forward. So I think that we don't want to de-emphasize the importance of the the framework that was built by you guys and what happens again, even if it's a, a slightly larger retrospective study that someone picks up because they hear this. So I think this is, is huge work. I'm thankful for you guys, the program, all the things that's been built there. Uh, just excited for emergency medicine in, in general. And that's kind of why I want to close out on just the excitement of 2024 of what we can do again for you guys who, who are unaware of the Empower Act Arts Conference that's going to be in Charlotte, uh, April 20, 26 and 27. That's going to be, again, it's the Emergency Medicine Pharmacotherapy with Resuscitation Conference. So I think topics like this and things that nature will be displayed there and really just a place for all of us to kind of come together and meet all the people who we've been super excited to read about. So um, I'm going to close out with that, guys. I thank you all for listening. Kyle, thank you for coming on and spreading your expertise. And I'm going to close out the same way I do every episode, guys. You don't have to be a pharmacist. You don't work in an ED. But everything you do, make sure you farm so hard. Closes it. Ozzy scratches his head. 
Whatever she's looking for, it isn't in there. Perfect, 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 perfect.